Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and my guest today might just change the way you think about happiness. Daniel Cordaro is a psychologist and research scientist who's led some of the world's largest global studies into human emotion and expression. He's been a faculty member at Yale University, an Edmund Hillary Fellow, and he's spent the last decade studying what it means to live a flourishing life. Today, he's the founder and CEO of the Contentment Foundation, with the goal of impacting the lives of a billion people in one generation. But his story goes back through the high Himalayas of Eastern Bhutan and all the way back to a chemistry class and the feeling of needing a change. Here's his story. I would like to go back to your university days just for a moment because you were not a psychologist first. You actually studied chemistry first at Ithaca College and then in a master's program at UC Berkeley. How did you become interested in human emotion and expression? That's a great question. It was one of the biggest career changes of my life. So I was studying to be a chemist. I was really interested in medicine and helping people and developing things to support people who are unwell. And um, I was in a PhD program at Berkeley to get my PhD in chemistry. What I noticed was I started to really enjoy the teaching component of being a graduate student there. I mm. loved being with the students. I loved being in the lecture hall. And I noticed starting to feel increasingly more and more kind of sad and depressed when I was in the lab. Mm. And this was, you know, no fault of anyone's. I just felt isolated. I don't know if anybody has experience doing chemistry work, but sometimes it can feel a little lonely in there when we're in a few mood for like 10 hours a day, seven days a week. It's, it's hard work. And so I felt a lot of joy when I was working with my students and I started to get to know them a little bit better. I started to really appreciate the human side of education and what education can bring into people's lives. And I decided to take a little break for myself because I was feeling exhausted. I was feeling burnt out, a little bit depressed personally. So I took about maybe two to three months where I just went to the, the library where I felt really comfortable and I wanted to explore new ideas and new ways of being. I'm a little bit nerdy that way. My comfort zone is in the library. <laughs> so I, I started going to the UC Berkeley library, which is huge. It's this massive like catacomb of incredible books. And so I think it's like the third or fourth largest library in the United States. Mm. And my, my task for myself was to just follow where I felt passionate. And the only rule was I couldn't pick up a book that had a molecule in it because I had spent six <laughs> years of my life reading books with molecules in them. So I picked up one book. You may have read this book. It's called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Mm. Really interesting uh, book on how we make snap judgments and decisions about things. And Malcolm Gladwell is a really interesting author. He takes modern psychology and makes it super easy, consumable, and exciting for readers to learn. And there was this one chapter in Blink on microexpressions from a guy named Paul Ekman, who I'd never heard of before. And there's this whole field of study that I read on emotion psychology, where people are able to understand the universal language of emotions. And there were some studies done in the 60s and 70s on the universality of our expressions. And it turns out that there's this whole language that humans speak, regardless of their culture or their background or their 
you know, belief system. And it just totally blew my mind. And I was, I was done from there. When I read that book, <laughs> it became an obsession for me. Mm. So I went back into the classroom and this, this was a, a really pivotal moment for me where instead of facing the lecturer, so I would always listen to the professor and take notes and then teach office hours afterwards. I flipped my chair and started watching the students and the students were engaging in all kinds of really interesting nonverbal behaviors when they're listening to a lecture. So some of them are like leaning forward, they're nodding, they're really interested like you're doing now. Thank you for communicating that <laughs> I'm at least marginally interesting right now. And then some students are like leaning back in their chairs, drooling, half empty can of Red Bull under the desk, clearly not paying attention. So I started taking notes on the behaviors and around week two, there's a big exam that tests the first two weeks of class. And after writing down these behaviors and seeing the exam results, I was actually able to predict with around 70% accuracy who would pass and who would fail the first exam by their body language alone. Wow. And I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> I was like, whoa, I'm onto something here. So I, I take this data to my advisor at the time, just an incredible chemist. She's, you know, one of these epic level scientists. I was like, you got to check this out. I can predict the exam results with 70% accuracy based on body language. She was like, get back to work. <laughs> you got a lot of chemistry to do. You're, you're wasting your time. So I knew there was a chemistry department uh, for education at, at Berkeley, the chem ed department. So I went there and I went to one of the advisors and was like, check it out. I can predict this behavior with 70% accuracy. And they're like, uh, you should probably get back to work. But there was, there's this other guy, they, they kind of called me back before I left the office. They said, there's this other guy in San Francisco. His name is Paul Ekman. And he studies this kind of stuff. He might be interested in your data. And I was mm. like, oh, I, I think I remember his name from that book. Maybe I'll send him an email. Little did I know I was emailing one of the premier scientists of the last century. I mean, he was in Time Magazine's top 100 most influential people of the last century works with the Dalai Lama, basically founded the field of emotion psychology and you know universal expression psychology with his cornerstone experiments cross-culturally. So just completely ignorant, I reach out to him like, hey, Paul, I'm a chemist at Berkeley and I have these data to show you. Don't you think <laughs> it's cool? And about three months goes by. Uh, Paul, Paul doesn't really respond to me. I didn't get any, any messages back. So I figured, you know, just went out into the void and I would continue with my life and still be in this crisis mode to try to figure out what I'm going to do. But then sure enough, three months later, I get this message back in my inbox, no subject heading, mm -hmm. all lowercase in, in the body and no punctuation. You're weird. Come into my office. <laughs> and then he posted an address. So I, I take this address and I go into San Francisco and I find this, this high rise in the financial district, you know, 32nd floor, really incredible office. And I, I go to this door and there's a sign on the door for like some legal firm or some paper company, something that was not Paul Ekman's group. And I realized, I think I'm going to be late. I was getting really nervous. I was sweating. So I knock on the door. I walk in. I'm like, I'm looking for the Paul Ekman group. Um, can you direct me? And the woman at the desk said, well, you've come to the right place. And I was like, but it says that there's some legal firm or paper company in here. She said, oh no, we, we kind of obscure where we are because we do some government-based work. So we don't want anybody to find out our location. So they, they sat me down and they gave me tests. 
So they tested me and I had no idea what I was doing. I had never taken a psychology class in my life. And they tested me on my ability to read micro expressions and recognize deception in, in people who are either lying or telling the truth and look at crowd behaviors and pick out the person who has unusual behavior. Literally no clue what I was doing. I figured I'd bomb this thing. So I, I did this and then I was like, okay, I'm ready to see Paul. And she said, no, we have to analyze your results. And then if you do well, then you can see Paul. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. So I go back home, a month goes by, two months, three months, no response. So I figured I didn't do really well on this test at all, never hear back from them. Sure enough, month three rolls around. I get an email from Paul, again, no subject heading, all lowercase, no punctuation. Where have you been? Come into my office. I'm hiring you for an internship. <laughs> so I, I got a, an intern's role at the Paul Ekman Group, and I actually ended up being Paul's last student before he retired. It was a great honor. And, uh, and Paul for, I mean, as, as kind of secretive and extraordinary as he is, I mean, he's one of the greatest scientists of the last century. And he taught me everything there is to know about running a great experiment and about doing science that matters, that really pushes the cutting edge of what we understand about human behavior and universal tendencies that unite us all together around the concept of human emotion and wellness. So he taught me everything that I needed to know. And after my, I guess, tenure with him, where I was literally teaching chemistry at Berkeley to pay the bills, and then I would go across the Bay to San Francisco and work with Paul, he asked me, what are you doing with your life? I said, I don't know, I guess I'm just kind of working for you and hanging out in Berkeley. And he said, I'm going to write you a letter of recommendation for the UC Berkeley psychology department. And if they know what's good for them, they'll, they'll accept you. And I was like, thank you, but that's not going to happen because I've never even taken a psychology class before. But sure enough, uh, one thing led to another. I became a graduate student in psychology at UC Berkeley and then pursued my PhD where I studied the universality of human expressions for, for about four years. And that continues on even in my work today. So I know a long, long answer to a short question, but it was uh, an important informative time in my life. Mm -hmm. And um, I think a really interesting transition that, uh, you know, I've, I've advised a lot of people who are in a similar position that there, there is something out there that can spark your inspiration if you allow yourself the openness to find it. And uh, I was just fortunate enough to find it for myself. Incredible. Uh, there is so much to talk about that I want to get into, but I feel like I would be remiss now hearing about Paul if I didn't ask at least just a little bit about what it was like to work with him. Uh, if there is a particular moment that, that comes to mind of, of what it's like uh, being an intern, uh, working with Paul, or, or what that experience taught you. I mean, he's just an incredible guy. This is a, a person who has spent his entire life focusing on human emotions, nonverbal behavior. He literally coded all 50 muscles in the human face, developed a system that scientists can now use to understand the movable muscles of the face and which muscles lead to different expressions of emotion. So just this, this epic level researcher. And so when you're working with somebody of that high caliber, uh, it, can be, it can be tough. Mm. I and mean, he's just super smart and very, very interested in the details and, and getting the experiment perfectly. Um, I remember, because he's, he's really famous in the field of psychology, so people are always sending him their books. They want him to read their books and write some commentary so that they can get, you know, five stars on, on Amazon. Yeah. And this one book came across his desk. It's just a, a moment that you were asking for. 
And my task for today, he said, I want you to just browse through this book and tell me, advise me if I should comment on it, if I should write, you know, some forward for it or something. So I went off and I, you know, started reading the book and I was flipping through and, you know, I wasn't super impressed. It, it was mostly just observational stuff and maybe a lot of opinion about how body language works. And there were a lot of kind of overstatements. So it, I don't think it really would have passed the scientific sniff test. Um, and you can, you can hear how diplomatic I'm being. I bring it to Paul and he said, so what do you think? And I was like, well, you know, and I told him the same kind of thing. And he just took the book and he threw it in the garbage <laughs> right in front of me. He was like, I couldn't agree more. I didn't want to waste your time, but I wanted to see if you could see a book that is valid in science and uh, as opposed to a book that's just trying to make some money. He just throws it in the garbage and he sent me off on my next task. So this, this is a guy who, um, who never wanted to waste time. He, he was just a diehard scientist. He believed in and loved the scientific method and he was very, very good at it and defended it. Amazing, amazing. So if you change courses, then you go from your PhD in chemistry, now you're switching to psychology. What becomes your focus as you delve into this entirely new world? When I was working with Paul, for, for those who may not know about Paul's work, he did this incredible series of studies where he found six or seven expressions of emotion that are universal. So everybody in the world expresses them. So happiness, sadness, surprise, fear, disgust, and contempt. So these, these emotions tend to be expressed no matter where we go in the world. Uh, and it blew the lid off of what we knew about emotions because emotions were previously seen as like the caboose of psychology. They're not really useful. We have to kind of control them. They get in the way of logic. Uh, Darwin started to write about the importance of emotions from an evolutionary perspective. And then Paul took Darwin's thesis about the evolutionary development of emotions and he put it to the test because if we evolve to express these emotions, then there should be some universal component across all human beings and Paul found some of them. When I finished my internship with him and I started to study formally at UC Berkeley, Paul came to me and he said, you know, I found six or seven of these expressions, but there are more. I want you to go and find them. So I want you to start a study where you expand this list of six or seven emotions and see how many there are out there. Because the more of these we can find, the more united we can be as a human species, and the more we can understand each other from a basic fundamental communications perspective. And first of all, I thought that was super cool. And then I realized what a ridiculously difficult task that was that Paul Ekman is asking me to expand his list of six emotions. So I went off and uh, one thing led to another. I launched the Universal Expression Project at UC Berkeley. And man, we were so lucky we landed a National Science Foundation grant, which freed me from teaching so I can go and travel and start collecting these data. And over five years, I coded around 2,500 muscles in the human face from 11 different cultures and even went to a remote culture that was never contacted before by the outside world to determine whether they experienced these expressions in the same way that other cultures did around the world. Uh, it was a, a study that completely changed my life personally, uh, but then also turned out to be one of, one of the top um, or largest studies in history on universal emotions, just from the depth and the scale of all the muscles we coded and the vocal expressions that we analyzed all the postures that we looked at 
just an incredible study that required, you know, dozens and dozens of collaborators around the world. You say it, it changed your life personally. How come? It did, because when you do this work as a universal, as somebody who's studying universal psychology or cross-cultural psychology, we focus on the things that are similar across cultures. We look for those nuggets of, of things that are conserved no matter where you go. And so understanding from a felt perspective and from a personal perspective that the sadness that I feel or the joy, the anger, the excitement, the shame that I feel right here and right now is the same joy, excitement, elation, and shame that's felt halfway around the world. Uh, even if I can't communicate linguistically or the person has a different religion or a different belief system, that profoundly changed the way that I see all human beings. And no matter where I go, regardless of whether I can speak the language or whether I understand the person or agree with them, I know that on a fundamental biological level, we feel the same. We have the same emotional experiences. The same things can make us afraid. The same things can make us sad. The same things can make us feel joy. So on that level, all human beings are fundamentally the same. And I believe that's a starting point to create a sense of unity across all human beings. So after that series of studies, um, I felt more connected to people all around the world than I ever have before because there's that common language that I now understand. Mm. I want to go to one of those moments in that Universal uh, Expression Project. If you could take me to 2014, you're in Eastern Bhutan. As you mentioned, meeting with one of the three last uncontacted villages on the planet. Take me to how that was arranged and what you found when, when you met with this group. Yeah, so I'll tell you the, the secret backstory about that because it was an incredible experiment. Um, you know, going to a place that had never been contacted before is an extraordinarily rare honor. And it's something that in 10, 20 years will never be possible again for the rest of human civilization, unless we find some other species on another planet that's been uncontacted before. So it's just an incredible opportunity. Um, but it, it all started because I fell in love. There was a, a woman who reached out to me in San Francisco. Her name was Lisa. And she sent me an email because she was interested in this universal expression work that, that we were doing and wanted to take part in. And I, I received a lot of these emails because it was a really cool project. A lot of people wanted to get involved. And, and I just so happened to be going to a meeting with Paul on my birthday. It was April 9th, 2013. And I told her, sure, I'll meet with you in San Francisco. We'll grab a coffee. Tell me about your interest in this research and we'll see if there's a position available. So I met with her and immediately I fell in love with this person. Um, just, I mean, head over heels. I'd never experienced that before in my life. And, uh, and we ended up talking not for five minutes, but for about two hours. I actually called Paul and I was like, hey, I'm going to be late for this meeting. <laughs> I'll tell you why in a second. And, uh, and we talked for, for about two hours. And during that conversation, we, we were talking about travel and adventure and the things that you know, we wanted to do in our lives. And I, I asked her, what, what's the number one place that you want to go to in your life? And she said, without skipping a beat, I want to go to Bhutan. And I had no idea where Bhutan was. <laughs> but like trying to impress this woman, I, I was super audacious. I was like, well, I'll take you there because I'm doing this universal expression project and we can probably do a study there and let, let's see what we could do. I had no idea what I was talking about. She knew that I was just, you know, full of crap. 
when I said that because she knew how hard it was to get into Bhutan. You know, it costs about $250 a day for the visa. It's basically illegal to do research there. If you're an outsider, you, you just can't do it. And so, you know, she knew I was just trying to impress her. But then I went to Paul <laughs> at this meeting with him right afterwards. It's like, Paul, I got a question for you. What if we take the Universal Expression Project to Bhutan? Do you think that's feasible? You know, are there, are there populations there that you know of that would add value to the science? And he kind of sat back for a minute and he thought, and he said, you know, there are three uncontacted groups of people left on earth. And one of them is in the high Himalayas. And I was like, that's where we're going. <laughs> so I, I started on this, this dead set journey to try to get the permission on a government level to go to Bhutan and do this study so that I can impress this woman and then maybe, maybe you know, ask her to marry me, which long story short, I did. Um, and so this was the person who would later become my wife. And, uh, and for, for about 15 months, I wrote to scholars, government officials, scientists, all kinds of people in Bhutan, trying to find somebody who could endorse this project and see if we can figure it out. And sure enough, one person in the east of Bhutan who knew a little bit about this remote group wrote back to me and said, yeah, this sounds like an interesting project. Let's see if we can figure out the permissions here. And over the course of a few months, we got the first um, non-tourist visa to do research in this very remote, very secluded place. And one year after I met Lisa, we landed in, in Paro and traveled out to the east of Bhutan, studied this, this remote group. Uh, we collected some extraordinary data that demonstrated the universality of about 18 different emotions. So we formally expanded on Paul's list and added to the science in a pretty significant way. And then on the way back, we hiked up to Tiger's Nest and I asked Lisa to marry me and she said yes. And she's been uh, my wife ever since and also a co-founder at the Contentment Foundation. That is one long roundabout way of proposing and, and getting married. <laughs> yeah, when you meet somebody like that, you know, you gotta, you gotta go the right way. You know, I, I need to make sure that I had all my cards in place before I asked that question. I didn't, I didn't want to leave anything to chance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you're in Eastern <laughs> Bhutan and you are working with an interpreter, uh, Dr. Dorji Wangchuk, who is mediating right between uh, your group and, and this uncontacted village. And one of the things that uh, struck me, there's this beautiful phrase uh, translated to be the knowledge of enough. Could you describe what that means, the knowledge of enough? Yeah, so when we were when we were in this remote village and we were studying all these different emotional states, a few of the villagers were really curious about what we were doing because it was just weird. These people from the outside just show up and they're asking us about emotions, which is kind of strange. So they went through the list of emotions and they they pointed to one and they said, this one is actually a really special one. Um, and I, I was looking at the list and the word was chugshe. And I turned to Dorji and I said, Dorji, what, what's that one? And he said, oh, the literal translation of Chugshe is the knowledge of enough. Uh, or, or the English translation is contentment. And I said, well, what, is, what does that mean exactly, the knowledge of enough? And then the villager said something and then, the, and then Dorji interpreted it to me. And the villager had said that right here and right now, everything is perfect as it is without needing to change anything. And immediately I got goosebumps down my entire body and I felt like, lightning struck because this was a really profound concept, not just from an emotion, an emotion psychological perspective, but from a human wellness perspective. 
And I think it was fascinating for me on a personal level because I had never felt it before. Mm. <laughs> so it was, it was just an interesting curiosity. So, you know, this, this word chugshe, the knowledge of enough, means that regardless of what's going on outside, externally, we can feel this sense of peace and equanimity and stability inside without needing to change who we are or what's happening externally. And that's a really interesting model for living life through this lens of unconditional acceptance of ourselves and unconditional acceptance of the world around us. Not meaning that we don't have the efficacy to change things, we can, but it's more that things don't get taken personally. They don't trigger us as easily. It doesn't get under our skin. We allow the waves of emotions to come and go and then contentment is the ultimate container that allows us to hold all of it at the same time. And it's related a little bit to the concept of unconditional self-acceptance in psychology, which is a gold standard in the clinical psychological approach. If we can support people in feeling unconditional acceptance of all of life's experiences, life becomes more effortless and more clear and more seamless in the way that we're engaging with it. So it's a really powerful concept and something that it was just the itch at the back of my brain that I couldn't scratch. And I decided to dedicate the rest of my career to studying it and practicing it on a personal level. Mm. You know, one of the great paradoxes of Western culture, at least, is how much time we spend on happiness, happiness being a pursuit of what we think will ultimately leave us satisfied. And we don't just spend our time, but money too. And yet, you know, we never seem to quite get there or stay there for long in any case. You've described the difference between happiness and contentment as one focused on more versus one of enough. Could you unpack that a little bit, the difference between more and enough? Yes. So exactly as you said, there's this idea of the pursuit of happiness. And immediately I see a problem with that phrase because it's a pursuit, right? It's something that we don't have and that we need to get. And it's somehow on the outside and if we spend our money in the right way or do the right things or be the right person or say the right stuff, then maybe that happiness will finally come. So the underlying assumption is you don't have it and you have to get it somewhere. We have to find it. We use this life to do all these things so that we can one day potentially discover happiness and then, then what? It's, it's over. We don't have to pursue anymore. But the big question is, how's that working for you? You know, does, does anybody actually find happiness and then the game is over and there's nothing left to do? The answer is no. Happiness is always a pursuit. It's always a carrot on the end of the string that's impossible to grab onto. And so that philosophy has a lot of problems. There's nothing wrong with being happy and pursuing happiness. It's, it's fine to do that. But just recognizing that that game doesn't really have an end. It's, it's not going to be over. So it's not really super wise to put all of your stock and time and energy into that philosophy if you're looking for an end to that game. On the other hand, contentment offers something very different. It's not the carrot on the end of the string that you can't reach. The assumption is that you already have it. It's already inside of you and it's been there all along. And all you need to do is remember it and rediscover it. And it's this space of peace and equanimity and joy that follows us no matter where we go, even at the highest highs and the lowest lows, we can return to a place inside of our hearts and minds that is stable, that's clear, that's calm, and that allows us to feel a sense of wholeness no matter what is going on outside of us. 
And that is contentment philosophy. It's the fundamental assumption that I am enough as I am right now. There's no hole in my heart that I need to fill through some external thing. Everything that I need is already here. And all I need to do is return to that space and I can remember it for myself. It's a very empowering strategy. And it's one where the solution is the problem itself. Mm -hmm. It's already done. The answer is, is already there. And it's you and it's been you all along. One of the things that I think is maybe hard to, to wrap your head around with contentment or one of the things that makes contentment hard to envision uh, culturally in the West is that it seems to run counter to our system, our whole worldview, you know, of, of capitalism, of individualism, this sort of relentless focus on more and progress and ever upward of striving. And I, and I think the criticism against contentment or where someone would raise doubts is in wondering if contentment still allows room for progress or self-improvement. You know, if I'm if I'm hungry and I'm content with that, that I'm not going to go out and feed myself or something like that. That's maybe a poor argument, but <laughs> but does that criticism hold water or or is there room for for striving for progress uh, along with contentment? No, the criticism does not hold water. Um, I mean, typically when people are talking in that way about contentment, they don't fundamentally understand what it means. And that's okay because there, there's a lot of misunderstanding around that word. Typically what people hear when they hear contentment is laziness, complacency, apathy, all these things that are very passive. You know, I just don't care anymore. Contentment could not be farther from that. And to answer your question, can contentment coincide with progress and capitalism and wanting more? Absolutely. If it, if it couldn't coincide, humanity as we know it would have already been long destroyed. Because believe it or not, you are already content inside. I can teach people in five minutes to do a simple mindful breathing exercise that will allow you to connect with that space of peace inside to calm the nervous system. And it didn't really involve any fancy techniques or tools. So everybody already has it. It's already within you. And it hasn't destroyed the world yet. We've been, we've been exploring this for literally thousands of years. And even, even despite the fact that this is part of our birthright, it's an inborn ability and sensation that everyone has. We can still strive, we can still produce, we can still do great things. You know, there's some classic examples like Mahatma Gandhi who freed an entire nation of a billion people from colonialism, did more in his life than any of us would ever dream to. He was one of the busiest guys on earth at the time when he was alive. And he said famously, I have so much to do today that I need to meditate for two hours instead of just one. <laughs> because he recognized the value of finding that place within him so he can act with more clarity. So he was a super, super active guy and he got a lot of productive work done and he recognized the value that contentment could bring for his leadership, decision-making and his understanding of what to do with his work and his career. So absolutely we can be content and we can be busy, we can be discontented and we can be busy. So my question is, which one do you want? Do you wanna have your cake <laughs> if you too? Or do you want to be miserable and, and productive? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's your choice. And it's a choice that, that we can regularly make and is the, the fundamental tenet of what it means to be well. So if you have that lightning strike moment in Eastern Bhutan, uh, the, the clarity of realization of this, um, you know, this word contentment and what it means and the feeling of, of I haven't really thought of that before or... I haven't f maybe felt that before. You mentioned how that, you know, becomes a very 
prominent part of your life. You go on to start the Contentment Foundation in 2017. Uh, I was really interested in asking a little bit about the pillars of, of well-being. There are four of them, and I'm curious about one or two. One of those I know is community. How does community play into contentment? Yes, well, all four of those pillars are actually fundamentally the same. And the, the four pillars of well-being are general categories of practices that people can use to find that place of peace and contentment inside of them. So the first one is mindfulness, which I know a lot of people have heard of before. And it's about using the breath to calm the nervous system and find that place of stability and, and peace inside. But then community is, is really interesting. Not everybody wants to sit on a pillow and watch their breath. There are different people with different dispositions. So we need different practices to support them. Some people are very active and they wanna be participating in the world and they have a desire to help and support. So there's a mindset that you can cultivate around selfless service, doing for others without expecting anything in return. And in fact, not expecting any particular outcome in general. Because if I'm going through life with this mindset of wanting to give and wanting to help and wanting to offer, the fundamental assumption is that I am already full as I am. I, I have so much inside that I have an abundance to give. And when we cultivate this abundance mindset, you can't help but being feel being full. You can't help but feel being enough or complete as you are. And that in its core essence is contentment. So you can do that by watching the breath while sitting on a pillow, or you can do that while helping someone and always offering your support and your heart and your help in a way that allows you to feel that abundance within so that you always have something to offer externally. That's a way to feel complete as well. The other one I was curious to hear about was self-curiosity. If you wouldn't mind talking just a little bit about that and how that plays into well-being. Yes. So we all have this thing called the mind. If you haven't noticed, it talks a lot and it's constantly running and it's constantly telling you things about who you are, who you should be, what you should have done better, uh, the, the people that you like, the people that you don't like, it has a lot of preferences. So this thing called mind is very busy and it's always active. Self-curiosity is a really interesting way to get to know the mind and to understand what this mind is up to and why it has all the opinions that it has. Because sometimes we can box ourselves into certain assumptions. For example, happiness is outside of me. If we ask a simple question, is happiness outside of me? That opens up new possibilities. Did you feel the difference between a statement and a question, right? When I say mm -hmm. happiness is outside of me, the journey's done. We've arrived at the answer, it's over, the assumption is set. But when I turn it into a question, is happiness outside of me? Now new possibilities open up and I feel expansive and I feel exploratory. I feel curious about the world and I'm open to being wrong which is huge. I'm open to learning new things and exploring new ways of being. And from that space of openness, instead of forcing life into the assumptions that I've already created, I can open myself to new ways. That also allows us to feel the sense of completeness inside of us as we understand the nature of the mind and leave ourselves open to all possibilities rather than pushing things away that we don't like and clinging to things that we do like. And that's also a way to get to that sense of contentment. Hmm. You have a goal with the Contentment Foundation to impact the lives of a billion people within one lifespan. How do you go about achieving that? 
I have no idea, but we're trying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I figured if Facebook could do it, we could do it too, right? We've got all these great practices uh, that have been around for thousands of years. You don't need any fancy equipment to do them. Children as young as three years old can learn how to practice them. They're also evidenced by modern psychology. So they're gold standard practices in the psychology world. And what the Contentment Foundation has done is taken those practices and we've packaged them in a way that makes it really easy for kids, adults, and educators to access them. So we bring these tools to schools and organizations who believe that mental health and well-being matters. And we support those organizations in rolling them out to their kids and adults. And so our hope is that through this work, these practices can become as standardized as knowing that fresh fruits and veggies are good for your physical body, knowing to do these practices are good for your mind. And we want people to have that information and that skill set so that they can take care of themselves before they go out and take care of others. So that's the general goal of the Contentment Foundation through these schools and organizations we partner, we, we partner with. We're hoping that our work can scale and our impact can grow to the level of a billion within one generation. That's our audacious goal. Uh, I, I think a fitting way to, to put a wrap on things, I know we're getting close to time here, and perhaps I'm going out on a limb, but you mentioned earlier the possibility of running me through some, an exercise in five minutes. Would you, would you mind, uh, is there a five minute or a brief exercise you might be able to lead that would illustrate some of how you go about teaching contentment to people in your practice? Sure. What would you like to know? What's, what's nagging your curiosity lately, Martin? How can I help? Let's, uh, let's, let's go with just something uh, that any individual, uh, I feel it, most, most of us do. It, it's a busy day. What's something I could do after a work day to center myself and uh, find that contentment? again after after being up in the mind all day long and, and needing to come back to earth a little bit okay great let's do something practical then so i'll give you two choices would you like to do a mindful breathing practice which i think a lot of people may know but may need some more practice in or would you like to try a loving kindness practice which is similar to mindfulness but has a slightly different flavor okay let's try the loving kindness that that feels a bit more unfamiliar to me Okay, let's do some loving kindness. That's actually from our community pillar. So I know you were curious about that. And in our loving kindness practice, it's a really, really powerful one where we allow ourselves to expand our hearts to feel similar to and feel connected to people who are progressively more distant from us. Uh, so it's easy to feel connected to our family members and friends, but then we're going to start practicing extending that same feeling to people we may not know, or maybe even people we may prefer not to know. <laughs> and that allows us to open ourselves up to um, people that may bring us difficulty in, in our lives and find that space of love in all conditions, which is a very, very powerful contentment practice. So let's, let's try it together. Okay. So what I'll, what I'll ask you to do very simply, just close your eyes for a moment. And in this moment, just focus on the feeling of your breath, the air going in, the air coming out. And as you do that in your mind's eye, I'd like you to picture someone who's very close to you, who you love very dearly. This might be a family member, it might be a friend, a partner, 
someone who you can feel a lot of love for very easily. And notice for a moment how that feels. What does love feel like when you picture this person? Notice what it feels like to feel love. Is it a particular part of your body? Do you feel it in your heart? You feel it in your stomach? Do particular thoughts or memories arise? Notice what it feels like to feel love. Once you've identified that feeling of love, I'd like you to imagine that space of love extending out one step further. Maybe imagine somebody in your life who you're an acquaintance with. You have an, a positive relationship with this person, someone who you may work with, someone who you may see from time to time, or maybe somebody who you knew in the past who you haven't seen in a while. And imagine this person in the same way that you imagine this person you love very deeply, who's very close to you. Because this is also someone who wants to be happy just like you, who wants to be well just like you, and who deserves to feel love just like you. And see if you can extend your feelings of love for even this person. Now I'd like to invite you to imagine someone who you're an acquaintance with, who you don't really know very well. Maybe you don't have a strong opinion about one way or another. Maybe it's somebody at the checkout line that you saw the other day. Or maybe it's someone who served you your food at the restaurant you didn't quite get to know very well. Picture this person in your mind. And in that spirit, of love and connection, extend your heart one step further to even this person. Recognizing that even this person wants to be happy just like you, that they deserve to be well just like you, and they deserve to feel love just like you do. Holding them in that space of loving kindness for just a moment before we take one more step further and imagine someone in our lives who maybe has given us some challenge recently, maybe someone we would prefer not to know, someone who really pushes our edges. Extending our hearts even to this person, feeling that sense of love inside of you as you imagine this person who brings you some challenge from time to time. Recognizing that this person wants to be happy just like you do. That they deserve to be well, just like you do. And they deserve to experience love just like you do. holding this for just a moment. 
before we're ready to take one final step where we expend that state, the heart, one step further to ourselves. Because sometimes the person who needs that love the most is us. And it can be easy to love a close friend, but sometimes we could do a better job at loving ourselves. So taking that love that we direct towards our closest friends and family and opening that up to ourselves right now in this moment. Recognizing that you are someone who deserves to be happy. You are someone who deserves to be well. And you're someone who deserves to feel love and be loved. And that you already have it within you. And as you're ready, opening your eyes back into the room, back into the space, feeling that sense of loving kindness all around you. Thanks, Martin. Thank you, Daniel. What a great pleasure to speak with you and uh, what, a, what a great gift that you've given just now. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, Martin. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you want to know more about Daniel's work, head to contentment.org. If you enjoyed the show, please do me a favor. Hit subscribe, leave a rating and review, and best of all, tell someone else about it. It helps get the show out there. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. <laughs>